This morning we're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, um, and the latter part of Luke 8. But this morning, when I say the word powerful, where does your mind go to? Is it drawn to something in creation like a waterfall or a hurricane or a tornado? Do you look at me and think powerful? Um, maybe not. Uh, do, yeah, no. Uh, do you think of a muscle car or a fighter jet? How about an animal in a wild like a lion or a bear or a person at the gym? Where does your mind instantly go when the word powerful is mentioned? In 2018, Forbes magazine put together a list of the 67 most powerful people in the world. The metrics for this were quite interesting, but the top 10 in 2018 were number one, Xi Jinping, China, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Angela Merkel, who was the Prime Minister of Germany, Jeff Bezos, who most of us are familiar with, Pope Francis, number seven was Bill Gates, number eight was Mohammed bin Salam al-Saud, which is uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Narendra Modi, who is the Prime Minister of India, and Larry Page. And speaking of those on the list, Forbes noted this. Word is God. When they speak, legions listen. The flocks look to these leaders, sacred, supreme, and otherwise, for guidance and answers. Now, I will tell you that the phraseology there is quite bothersome. It actually is concerning in many ways. Word of God. When they speak, legions listen. The flock looks to these leaders, sacred, supreme, and otherwise, for guidance and answers. Now, there were a few other things that were listed on that list that they were looking at in terms of categories. But what comes to mind when we say the word powerful? Well, there's one who is far greater and far more powerful than all of those 67 individuals combined. His word, as Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Who is this all-powerful one? It is Jesus, Lord of all. Jesus, Lord of all. And so this morning, we're going to see four distinct miracles in which Christ displays his power over all, imploring us to come to faith in him as our Lord. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Typically, we, we read the, the scripture together all at once, but this morning, we're going to do it in a couple breaks. And so this is a little change for Zach in the back. But we're going to actually look at each individual story together. We'll read each individual story when we get there, and we'll look at it to see specifically how it ties together. So this morning, I'm not going to ask you to stand because we'll be up and down throughout that. But 
At the center of this passage, these verses 22 through 56, this large portion of Scripture, which encompasses four stories and three specific principles, the call to us then is to come to Jesus in faith as Lord of all who has power over all. Come to Jesus in faith as Lord over all, who has power over all. Faith, Lord, power. That's what we're talking about this morning, is that we are putting our faith in Jesus, who is Lord and who has power over all. That is what makes him Lord, is it not? That he has power over all. Well, Jesus has been in the lower region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel. And as we saw in the first part of chapter 8 a few weeks ago, Jesus was teaching in parable, and throughout the parable he exclaimed, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He went on to explain a few things. One, that the condition of our heart will be determined how a person receives God's word for salvation. That his word is to be used and applied in our lives. And his family is identified by those who obey his word. And his call then for us then is to live by faith, knowing that Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so living by faith, being obedient to God, requires us to trust in his power, not in ourselves or in our circumstances. It's actually trusting in him, not what is seen or unseen, but in Jesus. See, through faith, we experience the miraculous work of his power, and in so doing, grow in greater faith. So he has just told them, my family is identified by those who obey me. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And immediately he moves into these four miracles, these four miracles that take place. See, this is Jesus' desire for us, that we might see his power and place our faith in him as Lord over all. And so Jesus as Lord over all has power over three specific things. The first that we see here is he has power over the natural realm, his creation, the natural realm, his creation. So in verse 22 through 25, we'll look at that section together and read that, and this is what it says. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Jesus has authority and power over the natural realm, his creation. All of creation responds to Jesus. Now, the disciples had witnessed Jesus perform other miracles. However, the windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And so they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. 
Now, it's a couple important to note a few things here. Jesus is actually sleeping in this storm. He doesn't seem to be too bothered. Now, the disciples, if you recall, they've already witnessed Jesus do some pretty incredible miracles, including the raising of a dead child. We saw that in chapter 7, when he raises the widow's son. But now they're sitting in the boat, and in the boat they're terrified, they're afraid. And notice what Jesus does. We're told that he awakes, he rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Now, the disciples had forgotten a few things here. The first was that Jesus said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. It was his word at his leading, and he is in the boat. He's the one directing. He's telling us where to go. It's at his leading. And then he's in the boat with them. Jesus isn't looking to kill himself. Jesus didn't give an instruction to them for them to all die. They had forgotten that the one who had given the instruction, the one who had spoken his word, was also the one that was present with them. That there was nothing to fear. Yet when their eyes move away from Jesus and his word, and they simply see the seemingly impending destruction of the storm to their lives, they become terrified. Can we relate to that? Can we look at the storms of life that we experience, the sufferings in life, and when we see the insurmountable odds of that suffering or of the storm that's coming, whatever it may be, Maybe a financial storm. It may be a physical storm. That we see that this overwhelmingness to it. And we move our eyes off of Jesus. We forget that we are with Christ. We're forgetting what his word says. Trust in me. Follow me. Walk with me. I've called you to this. And we forget that God has power over the natural. Psalm 89, 8-9 tells us, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. This is the Jesus that we serve. The God who has authority over creation, power over all creation. Boy, it's easy to look at circumstances, isn't it? To see only those circumstances that are around us and to lose hope, to lose our peace. Warren Wiersbe points out, it has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of circumstances. It is obeying in spite of feelings and consequences. Let me say it again. It has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of circumstances. It is obeying in spite of feelings and consequences. It's that we walk with Christ wherever he's called us to go, trusting him, regardless of how we feel and regardless of the consequence in front of us. 
He goes on and he says, the disciples looked around and saw danger and looked within and saw fear, but they failed to look up by faith and see God. Faith and fear cannot dwell together in the same heart. That's what he's saying. He's saying that we're called to push out. There's going to be fear, but that fear is to be trumped by faith. That reactionary piece that we look at a circumstances where we're startled, we're disappointed, we're frustrated, we're overwhelmed, we're scared. But then we're reminded of the faith that we have in Jesus. And that Jesus has authority over all creation. And in a moment's word, he can change all. And the beauty of that is that if he doesn't change all in the beauty and in the moment of that, it means that that's not what he's desiring to do in that moment. And that's okay. We may not like it, but it's okay. It's not because God isn't able. It's because God's purpose is different. I was sitting next to at a wedding yesterday night, and I was sitting next to a nurse, and I... We were talking, and she's an oncology nurse, and so uh, just through a series of things, we began speaking, and I knew that she was sensitive to the things of the Lord, but not yet a believer in the Lord, a confessor of Christ. So we sat for a moment, and I thought, what are some ways that I can bridge back to her? So we just started having a conversation about things, and Medical professionals don't want to hear about other people going through things. They live it every day. So I thought, how do I actually share some things just to help her see some things? And so in the, the midst of this conversation, she asked a question. I said, oh, and so I shared with her. I said, yeah, I said, I just, I've seen God's grace in a lot of ways. I've seen it in my health. And so I began sharing with her just what happened last February with this mass on my kidney. And through the series of those events of two tests affirming that it was there and suggesting it was cancer and the third test it being gone with a scar being present and everything being normalized. And she's just staring at me and I looked at her and I said, does that ever happen? And she's like, no. <laughs> and I said, but by God's grace, right? And we kind of laughed and she goes, yes, but, but by God's grace. It is by God's grace. It's for his purpose, for his glory. It reminds us that he has authority over his creation. It doesn't mean that God is going to take away every ailment because he can. It does mean that when he does it, it's for his purpose. Now we get the blessing and benefactor of of, of receiving that blessing for his purpose. But all of what Jesus does is so that others might see who he is. They might see his goodness and experience his goodness. And so Jesus' question to them, these disciples who had witnessed, witnessed him raise the dead, his question is, where is your faith? You ever been in the midst of life's storm? 
and pause for just a second and say, where is my faith? Wondering what that might be. God, I'm struggling. And notice what it says, and they were afraid. Isn't it interesting when we recognize our own weakness of faith, how fear overwhelms us? But then notice immediately what happens here. It says that they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? See, the disciples still had not yet understood that he was the Messiah. They're, they believe it, but they're learning it more and more, are they not? Are they seeing it more and more? There's portions of it where they look at it, and sure, they confess him as the Messiah, and then one moment later, they're like, who is this? Who is this guy? Because Jesus continues to keep surprising them. I thought I understood you, Jesus. But clearly I didn't. Now I'm understanding you more. That's part of our faith experience in Jesus. That Jesus begins to show us himself more and more. You ever feel like God's done enough for you and is shocked when he does something more? That's this. That's what the disciples are experiencing here. They've seen Jesus work. They're, they're seeing and seeing that, yes, he, he, he's quite possibly the Messiah. And yet now they're looking at who is this one that even commands the winds and the waves? that the nature itself submits itself to him. It's awesome. And so, what's the miracle of faith here? Jesus wants us to put our faith in him, and in so doing, we experience his miraculous power. And the part of that power, then, is peace amidst life's storms. He grants us peace amidst life's storms. That's part of God's power. He calms the storm. And so we experience his peace. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33 affirms this when he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what he's saying. Wherever we're at, through faith, we can have peace. When we put our faith in Jesus, it is amazing how he calms our spirit and gives us peace. God, your plan is better than mine. Yep, God, we're going across this lake, and boy, there's a storm that came up, and I never expected that. I mean, Jesus, you're right here with me. Why in the world would you allow a storm to arise? And Jesus is telling you and telling me and so that you might see my power and the world might see my power. Trust me. When they see you walking in peace in the midst of life's storms, you will be a testimony for the truth of who I am. So Jesus, as Lord of all, has power over the natural realm, his creation. 
Now we're come to the second story in verses 26 through 39. It says this, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he'd worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he felt down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by a demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. We heard that earlier, huh? For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now I'm not comparing what we said earlier about the legions of those leaders to the legion here. But any time, any time that we put our faith in man rather than in God, we are putting our faith in a false spirit. And that is the truth. You see, Jesus not only has power over the natural realm, but he has power over the supernatural realm, Satan and his army. He has power over the supernatural realm, Satan and his army. Jesus has authority. Notice right away, when facing the Messiah, the demons immediately acknowledge Christ and his authority. Jesus, son of the most high God. Now this is a great reminder. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And it reminds us that demons believe Jesus is the Son of God, but refuse to submit to him as Lord. It is the distinction between false faith and saving faith. False faith and saving faith. When you believe in Christ, what you are confessing is you are confessing him as Lord. It's not believing that he simply existed. It's not believing simply that he died and rose again and that he's returning the demons believe this. In fact, they were witnesses to it. The distinction is where we put our submission in that truth. Do I reject his lordship or do I submit to it? Do I surrender to it? Romans 8 says that our salvation comes as we do the work of what? Submitting ourselves, confessing Jesus is Lord. Let me read it. It says, uh, excuse me, I said Romans 8, I meant Romans 10. Romans 10, 8 through 10, and it says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and the mouth one confesses and is saved. Our belief, when you believe in Christ, when we're talking about belief, the belief that Jesus is talking about is a belief that confesses Jesus as Lord, that submits to him as Lord. That's what it's saying. It's not just the acknowledgement, 
of the death and resurrection, it is the acknowledgement of the death, resurrection, and confession of him as Lord. The belief is the total belief of what Jesus did, that he died and rose again for our sake, for those who put their faith in Jesus as Lord. We die to self and take his life. That's what salvation is. Belief in Christ, the totality of belief. It's not this narrow kind of American view of belief. Faith encompasses the totality of Jesus' claim and truth. When asked his name now, the legion, or excuse me, the demon responds legion. And we're told for many demons had entered him. Now, this is important because this is radical. Remember that this demoniac had gone through, they had shackled him, chained him up, put him around, tried to keep him in there multiple times with guards, and he breaks the chains and shackles multiple times. That's what's being suggested here. And then it drives him into the desert, naked, unclothed, sleeping in tombs. Now, the language here is interesting because it's tombs. He's kind of sleeping in the dead places. It is the signifier of all death. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. The suggestion here is that there were thousands of demons inhabiting this man. Isn't it? It is amazing. And these thousands of demons inhabiting this man were no match for Jesus. None. And you'll notice here that when he says he's talking to the man, he says that he asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered them. And then notice the change here. It says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are some demons that have been freed to roam earth, and there are some demons that have been cast into hell not to be released until the final days before, after, let's put it this way, the millennial reign of Jesus. There will come a point in which there will be one last battle in which hell's gates will be opened and it will be defeated for a final time. What they're asking for is not to be cast into the abyss until that time. The Matthew account says that they actually said, why have you come, O Son of Most High? You're early. Have you come to torment us before our time has come? Now, it's interesting here. Jesus grants permission for them to be cast into the pigs. And what he does in so doing is he makes it clear that he has delivered this man from the demons. It's a visual display of what is to come. And it points out the evilness of Satan. 
it points out that the evil work of Satan is to bring destruction upon God's creation. That's his point. Charles Spurgeon points out Satan would rather vex swine than to do mischief at all. He's so fond of evil that he would work it upon animals if he cannot work it upon men. I love it. Now I'll share with you that anytime that we begin to talk about Christ's power over the enemy brings with it an opportunity for the enemy to try to disrupt that. And I've witnessed that this week. I've actually witnessed in our own body the last few months different spiritual attacks, spiritual attacks on health and spiritual attacks on just struggles and sin, the old sin rising up, people's lives. I was talking to my family about this week of just having to continue to die to self. It's sin that I would love to have been gone out of my life long ago. I have to keep dying to it. But that's what we have in Jesus. Now it says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found that the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. This change actually caused fear among people. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country, the garrison, asked them to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. These people had witnessed this demon-possessed man get healed. And they were afraid, and they wanted no part of him. Remember the beginning part of chapter 8? He told a parable of the different soils. And the very first soil was the hard soil. It fell on the ground, and the devil came and snatched it away. It never even had a chance to root in. That's this. He's giving them a real-time picture of hard soil. They witnessed the work of Jesus. They witnessed his power, and they don't want any part of it. Now, the beauty of this is this demon-possessed man will go in amongst the garrisons, and when Jesus returns, there are people being brought to Jesus in droves. What's important about that is is up to this point, there is no garrison who has heard the gospel of Jesus. No garrison who has been confronted with the truth of Christ. This demoniac, he's the one that went into that region. And by the time that they're back again, this region knows who Jesus is. One person making a radical difference for the sake of Jesus. On mission. And he does it. If you wonder if you can have that same purpose, yes. One person on fire for Christ can change a nation. Isn't that amazing? 
It's amazing to think. It is why Jesus says that if he has a remnant, why God has repeatedly told us in the Old Testament that he can do stuff with a remnant. That's why we need to not feel overmatched in a culture that feels like it's going down a different path than us. It's why we ought to be even more motivated to demonstrate the love of Jesus, to invite people into relationship with Christ, to share the story and power of who God is. So what is the miracle of faith? It's freedom from the bondage of the enemy. As followers of Christ through faith, we are no longer slaves to the enemy. We have freedom from the bondage of the enemy. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wow. We're no longer in bondage to Satan. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 adds, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is Paul speaking, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying what? He's saying, listen, there are still those agents of Satan's army that lurk, that seek to devour but some of them actually have some purpose. What is the purpose? To keep us humble. To remind us, first of all, that we're no longer in bondage to Satan. And to two, to allow us to see God's saving grace repeatedly at work in our lives. God's power over Satan, over the supernatural. So we can see that Jesus battles on our behalf. And his grace can overcome even the supernatural work of Satan because Satan has already been defeated. And it is when we stop believing this that we lose hope, when we become discouraged. It's when we stop believing this that we stop experiencing victory. You see, we are not powerless to Satan. We have Christ in us. He's in our boat, in the midst of the storm. And he's looking at us going, where's your faith? I have power over the natural, and I have power over the supernatural. Keep putting your faith in me. I'm no longer bound by the enemy and I'm no longer bound by the enemy's schemes. Well, there's a third realm. And this third realm actually includes two stories here, but they're intertwined together, which actually ties them together really as one story or one principle tied in with two. We used to call this a theological sandwich. 
Because the writers take this and they move this together into one story. One key point. So we've seen that Jesus has power over the natural. We've seen that Jesus has power over the supernatural. And then we get to this experience where we're told in verse 40, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only daughter and about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, but what? Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So Jesus arrives. He arrives there back in Galilee. Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, another ruler that we know that was in the synagogue that would also be one who was a believer, Nicodemus. But Jairus in this case comes, he takes a risk. He's so desperate. Now notice the desperation in each of them. The demoniac man who has been enslaved by a demon for years to the point of breaking shackles and chains and thousands of demons, in essence, residing in him, whatever that number was. The disciples in the storm who are powerless to what is happening in nature. Jairus, who, for all intents and purposes, has seen Jesus but has been remaining quiet comes forward because he knows that there is only one who can heal his daughter. And this woman who has gone to doctors for 12 years with no answers, nothing to resolve her bleeding, just wants to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, the fringe. And so Jairus comes to Jesus and he implores him, come with me. And as he goes along the way, the crowd presses in and this woman who's gone to these physicians 
All she wants to do is get close to Jesus. She knows that if she gets to Jesus, she just wants to touch him because he's the one who can heal. And she reaches out and touches him and she's healed instantly. This woman who culturally was unclean, because of her blood, she was considered unclean. And instantly she's healed. Now what's Amazing about this is Jesus says, who touched me? And isn't it interesting that there's a distinction between those that are pressing in on him and those who would touch him with faith? Jesus wants to know her. He faces her. Oh, there's crowds around. There's crowds that have pressed in and touched him. But she came to him in faith, and she touches the hem of his garment. And he turns to know her. And you can tell that there is a unique difference. And it says when she saw that she was not hidden, that she came forward and explained why she had done what she'd done. And what does he say? He says, daughter... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What an awesome thing. Your faith has made you well. And then, you can imagine Jairus the whole time going, Jesus, hurry up. Don't stop here. You can deal with her later. Deal with her later, Jesus. My daughter's got a need now. And a person from the house comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore, she's dead. You can imagine when Jairus heard those words, what he must have felt, it's too late. I'm done. And what does he say? He says, do not fear. You notice that he said that a lot? Do not fear. Only believe she will be well. They continue on their journey. Jesus takes Peter and James and John along with Jairus and his wife into the house. And there are those outside the home who are mourning. And he says to them, do not mourn, for she is sleeping. And those outside the house remember this messenger was sent from the home to get Jesus because he could heal her. But now when he speaks, they laugh with mocking. Go, no way, she's dead. And Jesus goes into the room. And the Aramaic here is little girl, little child, arise. And we're told in Scripture that she sits up. She, her spirit returns to her. She sits straight up. And he says, give her something to eat. And he does something unique here. It says that his parents were, her parents were amazed. But he tells them to tell no one. Now, 
Jesus brings to life this little girl. And what he's talking about here is that, yes, through faith, he can bring physical healing. There's no doubt. If it's according to his plan, according to his will, he will bring physical healing, if that's part of his plan. But what he's actually giving us a picture of is a greater sickness that we have. And yes, Jesus can bring new life. But the combination of these two stories give us a picture of the healing of sickness and new life found only through Jesus. So he has authority over the natural, he has authority over the supernatural, and he has authority over our salvation from sickness and death. He has authority and power over our salvation from sickness and death. Now the sickness that's being spoken of at times may include physical healing. But the healing that he promises in Scripture is not physical, at least not in this life. The healing that he promises in Scripture in this life and in the life to come is spiritual. It is dealing with the sin or the disease of sin that is present in our life. That through the work of the cross, Jesus has the power to wipe away the penalty of that sin, to push it away, and to make us clean, to save us from it. That's what he's saying. And in so doing, he also has the power to give life. He is the author and he is the decider over life. And so, in Jesus, there is a power over our salvation from sickness and death, from sin and death. He's the determiner of it, not somebody else. So if you look at the authority or the power of Jesus, we can see that he has power over the natural, he has power over the supernatural, and he has power over our salvation, therefore our faith should be placed in him because he has power over all. What else is there to have power over besides the spiritual or the supernatural, the natural, and our salvation? Nothing. It means that he has power over everything. Well, what's the miracle of faith then? We're told here. Yes, she experienced physical healing. And the promise to us is that we will all one day experience physical healing. It may not be right now, but it will be once we are with him. And he is the grantor of new life. This is the resurrected life. And so the miracle of faith is healing and new life, the resurrected life. The resurrected life is life with Christ, eternal life with Christ. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When you put your faith in Christ as Lord, He deals with your sin, He applies to you His righteousness, and He grants you his life 
Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and, let's this, and its end, eternal life. It's the essence of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's showing us. It is power over salvation. Our salvation. He's the grantor and author of it. That's why we submit to it. That's why we surrender ourselves to him and to his lordship. And so we confess him as Lord of our life. It's a wonderful thing to think that God does heal physically in this life. Amen? But that his guarantee for healing actually is the eternal guarantee. And so if he chooses not to do it in this life, guess what? It will be healed with him. Because the promise is is that you have new life. You have spiritual healing. And you have spiritual life. And his promise to you now is this, that in overcoming the power of that sickness in our life, we get to go forward today in peace knowing that that sinful sickness in us has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus under his authority. He is both the mediator and the authority to forgive. So may it be this morning that when we look at our faith and we see Jesus as Lord, may we remember that what we are confessing is not only that Jesus has died and rose again and promised to return. Not only are we confessing that we are sinners, that we're in need of a Savior, but we are confessing that Jesus truly has power over all. The natural, the supernatural, and our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being Lord of all. May we rejoice in your might. May we no longer see our faith as weak, but it is strengthened by you who is awesomely mighty and strong. May it be today that as we look upon you today that we rejoice in your power, knowing that by faith we get to experience it every single day. May our hope and peace be placed in you. May fear be greatly diminished by faith. And may your faith, our faith in you, overwhelm all that we do as we experience the goodness of your power. And we ask this in your name, amen.